Listeners, this is Brent Sutton. Welcome to Season 4 and the 97th episode of the Practice of Learning Teams podcast show. On today's podcast, I'm joined by Morris Chip Mauser IV. In my travels and exploration of HOP and learning teams, there has been a close link between HOP practitioners and military service, and in particular, nuclear submarine operations. I have been fortunate to speak with many ex-military people, including Chip, who drives the integration of human and organisational performance principles and learning teams within a military supplier of goods and services. Chip lives and breathes HOP in daily operations to improve the quality of operational intelligence that he obtains in order to drive continuous improvement in safety and other functional areas. So please sit back and enjoy this two-part series with Chip as we explore everything about HOP. And and, and I think that's that's a tough part because um, my observation is that leaders feel that that knowing and acting are tightly linked. That once they have knowledge of something, they have no choice but to act on it. Um, And what I try and talk them about is that there's a difference between knowing and understanding versus knowing and acting. And that just as change happens in small increments, when we act, we're actually acting on a large increment. We're affecting, you know, big change, if that makes sense. Mm. Yeah. And and in our desire to fix, we then introduce other things that have unintended consequences. Yeah, no, I think that was one of the, that was one of Conklin's podcasts, I think back in the late autumn, I think it was late autumn or early winter. Uh, yeah, I think that's when it was, at least I can't remember when, but he talked about the, the four reasons people don't report. Yeah. And I thought the most interesting one was, was the fourth one, which is kind of what I, I, at least what I relate to what you're talking about now is that basically the cure was worse than the disease. Yes. That, you know, when, you know, when, when I came to help them be, you know, they brought me this problem. They came with maybe a solution that I wanted to help and make the solution even better. And once you make their job harder and you make mm-hmm. it more, you know, you know, the, of the four D's, you make it more difficult. Yeah. Now they're not going to, they're not going to want to bring you stuff anymore because that with, <laughs> you gave them so much help that their job got more difficult. Yes, so as, I as think, a result. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think to go back and that, I think that's a place where, most of us fall short and I know absolutely I do. I'm not as good about following up on those things. You get caught up in, in your daily routine and then you don't go back to see, did that fix work as intended? Um, you know, or has, and, and ask the question, is it worse? Is it better? Is it the same? And maybe, maybe it's good, but maybe in the meantime, they figure out the, the operators off, they'll find a way to make it even better. Somebody else saw it and had a great idea, you know, absolutely. so because yeah. Chip, you mentioned earlier about making do, which is one of our words we like to use. 
But making do is a reflection of their problem solving. Making do is a reflection that that work team are always problem solving. So when we're asking them to report something, you're saying to them, you can't problem solve anymore. Someone else has to problem solve it for you. Mm. So we sort of, I know it sounds bizarre, but we're undermining that thing that they are highly reliant on to be successful. And it's yeah, I think that's, it is the challenge. Cause I think the problem is, is I maybe, maybe again, it goes back to the point where we want to, in our quest to identify these weak signals, yeah. we, maybe we, we, we don't always have the, depending on where you're at in the organization, you become reliant on those reports because you can't walk around. You can't have that dialogue with, you know, I know I, I wish I could talk to 2,800 people at 28 sites in nine countries every day. It's just not possible. So you're, so I think, yeah, no, I understand. I think that's an interesting observation and, and a, a good thing to keep in mind that you're, you're taking away some of that pride or autonomy. You know, they take pride in the fact that they make do and they make those adjustments but yeah. I think we need to find a way to make it visible as well, because, and, and that's what I try to get across to them is that, look, I don't, I don't want to tell you, I'm not telling you to, to stop fixing things, but if you're fixing it, there's someone else that's probably fixing a similar problem that would benefit from your expertise. That's what I want them to share to and, generate the learning in the organization. Yep. yep. And, and look, and if you think about it, um, you know, Deming's work was about self-improving teams. His work was that you could have um, three production lines and you could have three different forms of standard work because the team worked out the most effective and efficient way of, of producing that, um, which is a bit foreign for us on safety because we like standardization because <laughs> we see risk yeah. in that. But I think the difference was, and, and, and what we're seeing is that... Um, particularly what, what we call in the routineness of work, where there's lots of daily activities going on, that what we've been working with organizations about is creating a reflective process for those workers where they can look back at work over a period of time, use the four Ds to look at some of those things, those situations that are coming along to then look for those patterns or those themes mm -hmm that came from that. And routineness by itself is the color of learning. So, so what we see a lot is that even in routine work, there's quite a lot of small incremental change that's occurred, but it's really hard to see. So the, so the thing that we've been working on is ways of getting those work teams to self-reflect as a work team and then how to capture that information in a way that we can then strip out and identify those weak signals. And more importantly, it's not only what they say, but it's also how they say it. Hmm. Because in what they say is the signal, but in how they say it is their ability to cope or their resilience. 
So yeah, because you'll you'll hear how how pro, how how far away they feel the, that you know how dangerous is something. You can tell there's a sense of urgency that'll get conveyed maybe in that message that can tell yes. you this is this is really serious. You know, we're yeah. <laughs> yeah. There, there's a cadence, uh-huh. or there's even like on one of the projects we're calling a maritime, we call it salty language. There was yeah. a language that they'll, they'll <laughs> that they'll use um, in that, and the problem is that when we report things. All that stuff is filtered out. We, we, we get filtered narrative. We don't get raw narrative because it's the raw narrative. It's, that's telling us how they feel. So what's been quite interesting in some of those situations where we've identified these um, weak signals and we've used some um, color around emotion to it, that rather than trying to chase the groups that aren't coping, we've been talking to the groups that are coping to find out what is their informal system they're relying on and then sharing that to the other groups. Yeah, learn from success. So yeah, the, the, the people that are managing this, that have, that have found a way to deal with the risk and adapt successfully, share that instead of the ones that are just, you know, unfortunately, you know, maybe still struggling, trying to find a, a, and I not even, and I think the other thing I've learned that I've tried to add to my lexicon is not to say best practice, but good practice. Again, best practice imply, we hear it all the time, but to me, it again implies a judgment as though there is a one best way to do things. And it's, it's interesting how these small little things in language, again, I, I never thought about them two, three, four years ago. And now I dissect, I find when I say so, I'm like, oh, why did I say it that way? I should I shouldn't have made that judgment <laughs> statement there. And and it's, you know, but it, it just to be aware of those things. And you can always I think that that's an important part of, of this journey is considering the language that you use, you know, not not to the point where you feel paralyzed and can't say anything, but but definitely to reflect and go, OK, you know, did did that mean what I think it meant? Uh, did other yeah. people, especially when you're working across cultures and English isn't a first language or whatever language your company language is, you, can, you, know, you have to be very cautious in assuming that everyone, everyone appreciates, you know, that everyone gets it the same way. And it it's, does not all translate. I find, yeah. It yeah. I find all, it. Yeah. I find it more dangerous to be a native English speaker. A lot of times I'll try to share the things I want to disseminate throughout the group to, to non-native speakers first. Right. And, and they'll point out to me, what do you mean by, and it's clear as day to me what I meant, Yeah. but it's, and, and so yeah, you have to, you have to, again, be very cautious of the language you use or, or perhaps not cautious, but, but reflect on the language you use to ensure that <laughs> you have a clear message because you've got no one to blame but yourself if that, you know, if that message goes awry, the first thing you should ask is, how clear was I? Well, you know, I, th- was, I, I, remember, uh... I remember one um, zero harm that in certain language, uh, Asian languages, zero doesn't exist. Hmm. Yeah. Oh. So I don't know how that translates. Does it translate from zero harm to get harmed? Who knows? <laughs> um, but we have the saying that you don't have to be bad to get better yeah and that's what we talk to people about you know improving yeah. improving is just an ongoing journey that we have as people and you don't have to be bad to get better 
Yeah, and I think you don't have to wait for some some event that that is a, as a catalyst to try something different to to go down this path. And yeah. sometimes I feel like there were, you know, at least initially in your journey, or some of the companies I've I've gotten the opportunity to talk to about this, you know, they've started down this path because of you know some horrible event, you know, a catastrophic event. And the company I work for, we we haven't had any, you know, we haven't had any any fatalities in in yeah, a lot. It's been probably 15 years, but it doesn't it doesn't mean that the potential isn't there every day. And it's not to be afraid of it, but it's to respect that that's there. And okay, let's we need to do our best to try to maybe improve the current system. The the thinking that got us to the low level of injuries you have today is one thing, but it only gets you so far. You've yeah. got to be willing to. We're we're not still we're not memorizing phone numbers and using rotary phones anymore. No, you know. No, so so it, yeah. So the same technology and thinking by that by that extend that logic, you know, further. We're not using, you know, reel to reel tapes or anything else anywhere. Everything's, you know, you've got all the music you want on your phone digitally yeah. with outstanding quality. Well, why aren't we willing to change the way we look at safety and look at it a little bit differently? And, uh, you know, to get that message into the organization where it's it's embedded that you're going to, okay, we have to, you know, it's, it's immoral to think of anything other than zero. You know, we have to have zero harm, zero harm, zero harm. And it's it's hard to get that across because I mean it's I understand why why people you have to you understand why that thinking is there, um, but at the same you know and then you often get the question of well, okay well who are you going to harm then if you accept anything other than zero you know are you going to pick somebody is the is the counter I've gotten when I and you bring it up and I think it's you know it's not an unfair question you have somebody who's perhaps experienced serious injury or fatality within their organization and they feel you know it's it's they feel very strongly about it but I think it's uh it's worth to have that discussion of you know we're going to make things as safe as possible but people simply we we make mistakes it's you know yeah, regardless look, of it's, <laughs> it's definitely interesting it's it is it is different interesting language because risk has to exist and death is always lurking in the shadows. So as you said, if something has the potential, death death is lurking. And I think there's two things. Um, I find it interesting. We've been having this de debate in New Zealand about um, smoking versus vaping. And what the scientists say and what public say are very, very different the public say Look, vaping is safer than smoking. The scientists are saying that vaping is less dangerous than smoking. Mm. So how does less dangerous suddenly become safer? It's all relative, right? <laughs> yeah, so when I think about high-risk work where there is the potential for a life-changing you know, an event, I talk about how do we make that work less dangerous? Because yeah. I can't see how it could ever be safe. No, it's, it's never, it's never going to be completely safe. I mean, you, you, some of the, some of the things we do, I mean, you just, the, the company I work for, we're, a, you know, we're an a, a aerospace and defense company and we work with, you know, energetic materials. 
You're never going to eliminate that. That risk is there is always some latent risk there. You're never going to get rid of it. You're never going to get rid of all of it. You do the best you can to keep, you know, you follow these cardinal rules of the minimum quantity, the minimum number of people for the minimum time. Sure. And try to, you know, and you build, you know, you build facilities such that you direct the energy away. You use remote yep. operations wherever possible. You take all these precautions, but you can't possibly, you know, unless you really buy into, you know, the, the that reductionist thinking where you can break a system down into all its little parts and 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 that that's the way it works. It, the world is too complex that we, we are living in a socio-technical system. That's you've got machines, you've got people, you've got and look at the pandemic hasn't made things any simpler for us. You know, it's it's only made things more difficult as we get, you know, you've got higher numbers of people, you know, often you have increased sick absence. So you've got less resources to do the jobs every day. Maybe you've got new people, temporary people. You've got raw materials that aren't coming when you want them. And if they do come, perhaps it's a substitute material or a new supplier because, the old supplier isn't isn't delivering anything to you. Yeah. So you've only you've only increased the complexity, you know, in what was what was already challenging. Now you've just upped it another another degree and uh, or several degrees potentially. So that's where I think that's where I find again this the the whole idea of trying to learn from those successful operations, you know, using learning teams, using the hot principles, learn from all the thing, all the days that nothing's happening nothing recordable happens just because it's not again it's just because it's not recordable doesn't mean there isn't something there for you to you'll you'll get something out of it uh, but it's yeah again it's it's difficult to find a way to see the perhaps your 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 middle management may find the time they're dragged in every possible direction to report report meet mm -hmm. production goals perhaps have to fill in on the on the floor you know on the production floor so yeah, it's, uh, I, I, that's probably the, one of the biggest challenges I see, at least in our organization is how do we, how do we find the time to, to make this happen every day? And that's where I think the everyday learning team kind of thing where you're talking about potentially with the, you know, the four D's, mm -hmm. it doesn't have to, you don't have to do, uh, you don't have to go to a separate meeting room, have the, soap, no. you know, have the discussion, have soap time overnight. Ideally, you get it to a point where you're just doing this continuously on an everyday basis. And maybe that's the, I think that's ultimately where you want to get to. And then, of course, you know, you still use a post-event learning team. And I think I like the idea that periodic, we're, we're looking at do, trying to do this for some products that we really see a bigger demand and production is going to increase like a hockey stick. Yeah. Well, when you have that big change, maybe we should find out how brittle is that system now before Absolutely. we really stress it. Yeah. And, and that's where I see one of the big benefits to this. And that's where my, you know, my colleague who's working on continuous improvement, we've talked about this, how maybe we need to pick some of these, these places where we see these potential step increases in production and, and get there first. And that's, you know, rather than wait for something to happen, do it proactively ahead of time, see what we learn. Maybe we'll find something that'll make the system. Yeah, I, I will, I will be surprised if we don't find something that improves the system, makes oh, it safer, make, makes yeah. it more effective. Just clarify all these points of friction that again, that people are living with every day, but yeah. we just don't know about them. You know, they're not, right. they haven't reached, they haven't reached a leadership level because people handle them, you know, because that's, they're good at it. Well, that's the thing. And the other thing is that those, we call them rubs those okay. rubs have to exist 
the system can't be perfect. It never will be. Deming said, you know, the system is degrading. Okay. So, but those rubs will change because risk ebbs and flows through the organization. Um, And it's being able to see, see that ebbing and flowing is what matters rather than trying to say, how are we going to fix it? Because it has to ebb and flow in, in, in that way. So at the moment, we're doing a, a piece of work around critical steps with critical controls, where we're using the four Ds to explore that deeper narrative around when those steps actually create rubs. In it. And it's, it's, it's really interesting, this, the stuff that comes back because sure enough, what you're hearing are all the informal things that are having to be done by people to make do in highly hazardous environments. But they're doing it successfully, but that doesn't mean that being successful doesn't mean that there's a threat in that. It's just that so far it's worked and it hasn't gone wrong so so far and it's been quite interesting that when we looked at those people the ones that were really good in that work had really high tuned um critical thinking and critical appraisal skills Hmm. and the ones that had been less successful had lower ability to appraise and critically think So what we've been trying to look at is how doing things like the 4Ds, as an example, can help to build those critical appraisal, those critical thinking skills, because those are skills you have to um, uh, nurture, if that makes sense. They're skills that have to be built on, and if they're not used, they fall away. But what we're finding is that curiosity is a skill that comes from nature. It's a skill that we've always had. But if it's not used, it simply becomes dormant. And what we're seeing is that the four Ds brings back curiosity. And once we've got curiosity, then we can build on that critical appraisal and that critical thinking. But you build on it through the frequency of interface and discussions. Yeah, it's a, it's that continuous dialogue. I think that's yeah. really that's so important, and it's uh, and that's what I've been trying to talk to to our people about is that when you go and you know a, a safety walk or whatever you want to call it is is not simply making sure that the exits aren't blocked, the fire extinguishers aren't out of date. Okay, that that's all part of it. Those are regulatory. Those are things. Yes, you should, you know, okay, check those things. That's still, it's, it's not important. It's not that it, it's not that it is not important, but it's not the most important thing. If you're not talking to the people out there who are facing the hazard every day and asking them, what's the most dangerous thing you do here? Yeah. You know, and, and, and genuinely ask them, wait, you know, don't, don't just ask them and, 
and then get all rushed and say, oh, I have to go to a meeting. No, show an interest. Let them show you what's difficult about their job. What's, mm-hmm. you know, the good, the bad and the ugly of it. What works well? You know, there's, there's, you know, and, and that's the other thing to do is just to approach it from that standpoint too, is ask them what works well. And then they'll be surprised at what they tell you. And then maybe you can share and do more of that. You know, it's, it doesn't always have to be a negative thing. What doesn't work well, you know, ask them, you know, you approach it from several different angles and, and use a variety of different questions and see what you get rather than walk around and ask the same thing every day. You know, if, Look, it's, yeah. I, I, I agree. It's, it's a mindset. Cause like one of my passions is around machinery safety yeah. and um, and when I'm talking with groups of people, like they see a lathe, for example, you know, and the guard on the lathe might be off to the side. And I ask that group, how, how would they engage with a worker about that guard? And their normal response would be, why is the guard missing? Yeah. Okay? That's normal response. Okay. Which, by the way, is very blaming. Okay. Because it's oh, very yeah. judgmental. Yep. And then I say, I said, well, maybe we'll ask the question a slightly different way. And the way I ask the question is, can you share with me how the guard was interfering with your normal work? Yeah. Okay. Now, if the worker said to me, or oh, it doesn't interfere, it just has been fitted back on, I've still created a learning opportunity. if he did share with me the fact that, well, the, the guard hasn't been put back on because two pieces are missing. Well, the guard hasn't, you know, because what the person's going to do is they're going to give me the context to it. Exactly. They're, yeah, they're going to tell you that there's some sort of uh, operator maintenance or maybe a, 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 a malfunction that's causing them to have to go in there twice yeah. an hour to get to that. And if I'm going to possibly meet my production goal, then I don't have time to take that thing and put it, take it on and off, you know, twice an hour. Yeah, but the oh, question uh, I asked no. took no longer to ask the question. I just asked the question treating the worker as the knowledge holder. Oh. And 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 yeah. I know that that's a mindset thing. It's it, it is. I think it's so much of that it's I, I like I said I can't say enough about the the, the whole you know was uh, with the humble inquiry approach I think yeah. is so important. I think reading reading shine's book is is should be something we all <laughs> i i can't recommend it enough i've shared it with a lot of colleagues because it's applicable every it's applicable yeah. everywhere it's it's a cross fun- it doesn't matter what function you serve in an organization we can all be better listeners and uh and and, and just ask better questions like you say that that aren't judgmental that uh you know that that set people up to, to have that dialogue and share knowledge rather than come in and, and not understand the context and start blaming someone for something that there's probably a perfectly good reason that, you know, that guard is missing. We just don't know yeah. what it is yet. And, and I just sort of share with, with leaders that learning is a two-way thing. Hmm. And just as they should be asking questions that they can learn from, they should actually ask questions that helps the other person learn as well. Hmm. Because if that's a shared experience, they'll remember that. Like, like, this client I was with yesterday, we had that conversation around forklifts. Um, I only go down there. I, I catch up with them maybe every six months with the team and the team has changed. But when I go down there, that entire team of workers treat me as family. Yeah. They remember me. 
And I might be having a 10-minute conversation with them. So whatever happening in that 10 minutes sets that up. So when I see them the next time, there is this level of trust that exists that I've not had to ask for. And, you know, I just say to people, it, if you ask questions where we respect the other party, this whole notion of trust builds incredibly quickly. You don't have to do a lot to get it established. But I go back to my earlier comment. I think leaders feel that once they know something, that they have to act. Yeah, there's definitely that action bias instead of instead of listening. And I think you've got to take that, try to take as much as we can that role of a facilitator. It's much more valuable. And to me, it's it's quite simply the old adage of, you know, give a man a fish, feed him for a day, teach him to fish, feed yeah. him for a lifetime. You know, if you can if you can ask questions such that people find a solution for themselves rather than you trying to just tell them, oh, this is how I would do it, or this is how I did it. This is how I did it at another at another location. Yeah. You know, be be careful to offer those simple, the simple, easy outs because I mean, we're, you know, we're we're lazy. That's what people do. We want an easy solution if possible. You know, we've are all overloaded. If we have an improvement action we can add to a list and say that we made this improvement, then we're happy to take it. But I think if you can lead someone down that path and enable them to, to think about it critically, take that systems perspective, think about upstream, downstream, how is, why do we do it this way at all? Is there a better, you know, do we, why do we use this particular method? Is there a better method we could use to accomplish the same thing or get a better outcome Then allow people's creativity to, to come out? I think it's a, it, it's, it's a challenge as a leader, again, because it goes back to what are you expected? You're expected to have the answers. And so it's, you're, you're, you're yeah. turning that on its head. So it comes back to being comfortable with admitting that you don't know. And it's, uh, I think you've got to have enough confidence in yourself to, you know, you, you have to, you just have enough number of confidence in yourself to be willing to be vulnerable and ask the question yeah, and, look, and I, just, and say up front, I don't know the answer. Can you help me with this? I, I genuinely don't know. And usually people will, you know, may, they may be surprised at first, but I think in the end they're going to be happy that you're you're just you're being honest with them, and then yeah. you, that invites them in turn to be honest with you. So it's I think it's a it's a win for both people. I, I remember um, working in the maritime sector. You know that these these skippers on these vessels they were telling me that there is time when you need to go into command and control. Yeah, but ninety percent of the time you don't need to be in command and control. And if you're constantly putting people in command and control, you won't build a team. So it's that same thing. Leaders, there is time when they need to lead. But for the most of the time, they're actually facilitating. They're enabling things, if that makes sense. But the problem is, I also feel that we keep telling leaders what they should be. And, and I like um, Jeffrey Lith's um, analysis around the four Ds. It's a Trojan mouse. Okay. Okay. If you get the four Ds happening at the front line, it becomes a Trojan mouse. And all you're wanting the leaders to do is to simply to listen 
to what the workers are sharing. Yeah. And yeah. that's that's the leap of the leap of faith is the opportunity to allow the Trojan mouse. And it's I uh, we've been working with an Australian based company um um in logistics and they were using the four Ds to have worker conversations. And the things that were coming up, because they were all about safety conversations, but the things that were coming up and the things that were being solved were actually about efficiency, organizational, um, lowering emissions. All those things is, is what the wins were. And out of interest, those wins are measurable. Okay, they were very measurable. The safety one, which is very difficult to measure, was that we have reduced the frequency of forklifts and people in those pressure points. Yeah. Okay, but you don't want to give that a number because you don't know what that's going to look like a month now or two months from now or three months from now. But what the organization could measure straight away was we're now using less amount of energy. We're moving more product quicker. So what they learned was that um, hop and learning teams was actually about operational excellence. And safety was a byproduct. And it's that alignment between you know, quality, safety, you know, operational excellence, they all fit together. And this thing they encountered, it had been done that way for years because no one asked why and people didn't raise it because if they raised it, it became the Inquisition. Mm. Mm. Now, the organization said, we need to affect cultural change. And we're saying, no, just use the Trojan mouse and sit back and watch what happens. And they were shocked at how quickly it actually changed. So now, now what they're trying to do, they're trying to accelerate that across the, all the other organization. <laughs> and we're saying, well, hang on, guys. You know, just, just because it's been really, really successful, what you've got to remember is that, um, and we've seen this with other organizations where they end up telling us they're learning too much. And we're saying the problem is that you need to closely think about um, the difference between how learning can happen at a work group level versus how learning can happen at an organizational level. And don't think of learning as a, a, a constant intervention from the organization. Think of learning, you know, that self-improving happening and then and boosting it up. Sorry, you just on mute there, Chip. Sorry. Sorry, I'm trying to trying to relocate. My no, daughter okay. is ready to she she's ready to to hit the hit to, oh, to go sorry, to bed, look, and I'm like, <laughs> yeah, that's okay. We have we have dragged things out. So yeah, give her my yeah, give her my apologies. That. Tell us, someone yeah. from New Zealand, um, is delaying things. 
Yeah, no, well, it doesn't uh, it doesn't help. I'm not unhappy to to listen because it's an interesting discussion. So I just have to actually find. I let me grab my charger. Sorry for the editing work. Oh no, okay, short. that's that's okay. It's all good. But it's uh, oh, this in. Editing's not a big drama. So, Chip, I think once again, this has been a real valuable um, experience and, and just your sharing. And uh, once again, you know, I really like, um, you're probably the third person I've spoken to with a military background. And it's been a really great experience about how those things sort of, you know, have come across over time. And I think like every, I think like every other situation, um, you know, trying to take these things and to spread them across the organization. Uh, I say to people, you know, think of it as small steps, small incremental steps, not transformation. Um, and, and I sometimes think that hop and learning teams is like a form of a virus. Once, once it gets in, you know, it just really becomes part of, of how we do things around here for people. And, and I agree with you, it's not a program. It is a philosophy. And it's not about throwing out what you've done. It's about building on stuff to do better. Which is, is, yeah, absolutely. The, which is funny enough, is that not the objective of continuous improvement? Well, and that's exactly how I see it. I mean, it's, you know, you're not, you're not getting rid of your standard operating procedures or personal protective equipment. You're just taking, okay, you're just asking some questions about why do we do stuff this way, accepting the fact that an SOP is a living document. It, it has to evolve over time. And if it's not easy enough to change, then people are going to change them without you. You can either embrace the change Yep. Or you can just, or you can just let a big gap develop to the point where you don't recognize your processes anymore. And isn't that much more dangerous to, to be blind than to just go, okay, hey, this this has to change. And how easy is our system to make those changes? If it's not user friendly, then then that's a place where you know that we need to go back and look at it and say, okay, how how do how do we get that feedback loop to work quickly and effectively? so that we can actually adjust it. And you're not, you're never going to get rid of the gap, nor is the goal to get rid of that gap between work as imagined and work as done. It's respect that it exists Yeah. and, and, and go, okay, why, why is it there? You know, what, what's happening, what's causing it. And is there, you know, is there, is there, are there problems that are just driving it wider and wider to the point where <laughs> it, that leadership is divorced from reality. And I think it's a, it's a question of if you're going to make, Part of the, the re, part of the way we've been discussing it in our organization and the way that I've, I've tried to approach some of the leadership is if you want to make good decisions, then you need to have better information. And if you're going to get better information, perhaps you should ask better questions or at least yeah. different questions. So, you know, and it's it, none of this is my own, you know, it's all paraphrased from, you know, you read a whole Nagel, Decker, Conklin, you know, mm -hmm. 
Bob, Bob Edwards and Andy Baker. I mean, their their webinars I did last year were probably that was some of the the best stuff I got to do during COVID because I had time to do it suddenly. And it just really they have a really good way of making of, of bringing these stories to life and making it, you know, making it very easy to understand. But uh, yeah, no, I, I, I think for me, it's been really interesting to, to have the opportunity to, to chat with you today. Uh, you know, I apologize for the length that we've gone to here, but. Oh, uh, it's okay. It's, uh, uh... <laughs> it'll, become a, it'll become a two-parter. And, <laughs> and you know, I, I think for people, um, you know, I, I talk to leaders and, and just sort of say, it's, it's okay for the gap to be present. We don't want the gap to become a chasm because you can cross a gap but you fall through a chasm. Yeah, I think that's a that's a good metaphor for it. Absolutely, it makes it it's 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 visual, easy to understand, and easy to see. Yeah, yeah, and 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 ultimately, you know, when you talk about having multiple countries, multiple cultures, multiple this, multiple that, having conversations and having dialogue is far easier than issues around literacy and numeracy with forms around digital mm-hmm. digital literacy and all the system issue problems that you have with cultures and people conversations are far easier yeah. to have okay and yeah the reality is there's a reason why we are different cultures and i just say just embrace it yeah there's strengths in all those things if you're willing to, to look for them yeah, it's a bit like um, you know, confusing um, Americans Canadians. That's for, for us. That is the same as New Zealanders and Australians. Yeah, okay? yeah. yeah. We're, we're no, different, an, yeah. different cultures. Different cultures. <laughs> an, an, an American doesn't get offended. A Canadian is 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 just aghast that you've made that mistake. Yes, so. I would say um, po- <laughs> um, politely aghast. Because yeah, sometimes they're far too polite. Yeah. Yeah. yeah they'll probably <laughs> apologize. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Apologize to you. I know. This is the bit I don't understand sometimes. Um, yep. we're, we're Kiwis. Yep. We like to use a bit of humor. We're a bit more self deprecating um, mm-hmm. in, in our approach to, to things. Yeah. Um, and coming from a small country, we really value innovation. Yeah really value innovation and i don't know if that innovation um is part of a problem or in our level of harm rates that we have because mm. mm. we do have high levels of industrial harm rates at the moment much higher mm. per head of population than the likes of australia and the uk so it's something that we should not be proud of but yeah is that the downside to innovation yeah Chip, thank you, mate, for today. It was really, really good. And obviously, once again, please enjoy the rest of your evening. Okay. No, I uh, I appreciate the invitation. I hope this was. I yeah. I hope you get something useful out of this. I'm not sure that with all the the rambling I did here that the, you'll get anything useful. I hope that hope that something good comes out of it. It's, it was definitely interesting to to talk to you and you know hear your perspective uh, you know on this and and some of the experience. Uh, you know, that you guys have with, with learning teams and things, because it's been something that's definitely, you know, I really appreciated the book uh, quite a bit. You know, it uh, is one of the things that's, 
one of the one of the key I'd say one of the books that's really been helpful for me along the way to provide sort of some very practical guidance and advice. So so I do appreciate it. No, thank you. That's heartening because you know it's a, it's oh, it's two and a half years since we wrote it, yeah. and we're cur- currently um um wrapping up the next book in the series. Um. Yeah. So and once again, it's all about the evolution of these things. Yeah. So look, thank you because it, it really um. Once, once again, uh, the book wasn't about, didn't happen during COVID or happened before COVID, uh, but it really was the fact that my, my desire was that as these types of things become popularized, if we can't provide people with that good background, that framework, the, the sort of the how-to type thing, mm. then, you know, we set ourselves up for a fall, ultimately. Welcome to Safety Differently Merchandise, the premium sponsor for the Practice of Learning Teams podcast show. Our curated lines of inspirational clothing, headwear, cups, stationery and more, at Safety Differently Merchandise, is befitting of your Safety Differently journey. I am Arthur Taylor, Chief Designer. I have spent decades on Savile Row, and honored to bring my talents, for all fine purveyors and devotees of. Hop. Learning Teams. Safety Differently. Safety 2. And the New View. Please visit the store and purchase our fine goods at safetydifferentlymerch.com. And now, back to the show.